Welcome to the Endless Wealth Podcast. I'm a mama of two little ones, owner of a multi seven-figure real estate portfolio, and I'm your host, Sarah Miskelly. My mission is to show ambitious, high-performing women in business how they can stop chasing money at work and start making passive cash flow and build wealth from real estate investing. Just be ready because with the right ideas and advice me and my phenomenal guests will share in each episode, you will see things differently than you ever thought possible. All right, let's get into this week's episode. Today, I'm speaking with Dugan Kelly. And Dugan, I've known you for a bit in the multifamily space. Your name comes up all the time as the go-to person when it comes to law, anything related to protecting yourself as a passive investor, and just working with a lot of the top syndicators in the US. Uh, So I'd love my audience to know a little bit more about you and your background before we kind of dive into the nitty gritty of legal protection. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you to everybody that's out there listening. Yeah, so I'm a I'm a full time uh, lawyer. Don't hold that against me. I've been doing it for a long time now, twenty three plus years. Um, I'm licensed in multiple states, but I really have a passion. I started having a passion years ago for commercial real estate and um, growing up in a in a uh, a family where my parents were uh, pastors and they. Um, started making money through passive investment in real estate. And that's how I became interested in real estate. So then I morphed my practice over the last decade or so into almost exclusively me personally in commercial securities as well as commercial real estate for sponsors. What that really means is we'll represent high net worth individuals, family offices, investors, uh, sponsor syndicators, operators, all around the United States in the placement of their capital, usually to buy things associated with dirt. Doesn't always have to be multifamily. Sometimes it's self-storage, mobile home parks, hospitality, mixed use, all of those things. But anytime you're raising money from passive investors, that touches upon this specialized area of law called securities. So last year we closed over $3 billion in structured deals where a lot of that was uh, passive investor money that was used to actually acquire those assets. So that's that's what I do each and every day. Uh, it doesn't get old, especially with the given the volatility in the capital markets. You kind of go up and you go down and and all of that. So we're but we're we're blessed to be able to be in the space that we're in, and we're we're so very thankful that. Uh, it remains challenging. It's never a dull day here at the office. And what I appreciate about your background is you come from a familial background of passive investors. And I find in this space, there's a lot of people that start on the LP side, so the limited partner side, and they get into the general partner side. What is good about that is you have seen it all. <laughs> Essentially, you've seen yeah. what passive investors deal with, you know, handing their money over to general partners. And you've also seen the legal way that that works and the protections that are being put in place to ensure that like you said, over the last few years, passive investors capital is protected, it's secure. Uh, So I'd like to know a little bit from you in terms of what you're seeing in the market right now relative to the last few years. What mistakes have you seen people make that you would want to tell your clients right now not to make? Yeah, it's that's a great question. I get asked it a lot, especially at conferences or meetups where I'm at. The reality is this is not a no-risk game. 
So if you're investing in whatever asset it is, um, there are risks associated with that investment. So the biggest mistake that I find are investors that don't read the actual documents that accompany their potential investment. And then secondarily, the vetting of sponsors and operators. So understanding obviously the risks associated with the investment. So if I see offering documents or an investment that has no offering documents, which means you know an offering is usually done through what we call a private placement memorandum, and those are broken up into components. So it doesn't really matter which lawyer kind of does the wrapper, That's, that style of presentation. It might be slightly different who the lawyer is that authors that, but the ingredients that go into that are all the same. So whether you're investing into a donut shop or a high rise or a mixed use development or a hotel or a multifamily property, those those components should be the same. And if you're a passive investor and you don't see those components, that's a red flag. And then more, more importantly, or just as important, when I'm investing personally or when I'm vetting deals for uh, potential investors, I want to know who the sponsors are. I want to know what their track record is. I want to be able to vet those people. I want to be able to call colleagues or other potential investors who have invested in deals that they've had and figure out if they've been, if they've kind of delivered on what their promises have been historically uh, in connection with those offering docs. And if if you don't do that, I think you're if you're an investor, you're doing yourself a disservice. Because yes, this still is a relationship game. People largely invest on the basis of people they know, like, and trust, right? Okay, so if you know, like, and trust somebody and you want to invest, but yet you still haven't checked out their track record, their references, or read any of the documents, you're really, I think you're really doing your a disservice. So that's the biggest advice that I give to investors. And then if you're an investor and you're like, man, I'm, I've got a crazy W-2 job or uh, I'm traveling all the time and I don't have the time to read these documents. And yes, they are thick. Or I don't understand because they're using squint speak or they're like legalese and you just don't understand from an investor perspective. That's totally fine. Just hire somebody to to peruse those things to show you what the pain points are so that you at least have an informed decision, right? You would never go into surgery at a hospital and not have, what are the risks associated with this surgery? So I don't know why you would do the same with placing large amounts of capital, particularly given the fact that you're going to be most of these investments have minimum investments of 25, 50,000, 75,000, even more. Uh, and that's that those are some of the highlights of things that I think that I've seen that investors have just that have done that I, I counsel uh, them to just uh, basically do a little bit differently. Uh, you hit the nail on the head with the know, like, and trust, because that's essentially how this starts. People build relationships with somebody that they resonate with. A lot of the time it's, you know, hands off. And from there, if they're not doing their due diligence, then they may 
put that above the realities of their track record and their background. And it's one thing that I'm always sharing with investors is you may like me, but let's get your CPA involved. Let's get lawyers involved. Who else is a decision maker in your family? Is it a spouse? This is a big decision. As you mentioned, these aren't, um, you know, amounts of capital that we should put lightly and yeah. also the relationship is long-term whenever i'm speaking to people i say like, we're not going to be in a, in a one-year relationship i was a realtor um, in my past life i grew up as a real estate investor but then got into real estate sales you're kind of you know helping them buy the property maybe they'll buy with you later but in investing you're together for the five to seven years of that deal, if not more. So it's really for somebody to do the upfront due diligence. Aside from the fact that this is passive, it's truly the upfront due diligence that you spoke to that I think is the most active component. So you want to do it right, <laughs> especially Absolutely. as you know that everything else is going to be passive and you're kind of putting the trust into the partners that you're working with. So I really appreciate how you laid that out and how technical it needs to be at the beginning because this is, you know, the tortoise and the hare. It's, you, you don't want to go fast when, when you're dealing exactly. with this. And in yeah. terms of the the contracts that you've seen come across your plate, because you have such such a, a vast experience in this, what are some red flags that an investor should look out for if they're considering getting into a deal? Yeah, so I mean, the the biggest is just not having documents, right? You might be surprised to know that I still see potential investments where there's no there's no real offering memorandum there's no real discussion of risks sometimes there's not an operating agreement or a limited partnership or a shareholder agreement that accompanies the investment instead people are using relational capital to essentially leverage potential investors to wire wire them funds or money for the investment and then they'll say hey well the the my my lawyer will get the documents and that will come at a later a later date and i always tell tell my clients the investors that i where we represent or family offices or high net worth individuals that are looking to place capital in this market that no the the reality is if if the whole deal is built on sand right uh it's going to fall apart at some point. And so you really have to have a good fundamental uh, building block base for the investment. So I want to know and be able to check that is the fund entity actually registered and formed in the state where it's purported to be formed? Is it in good standing? Can it actually conduct the business that it's trying to do? Does the operating agreement have things like um, uh, capital calls or voting rights or loans or what's the waterfall look like? All of those things. So when that offering document kind of goes in the trash after the raise is closed, the investor is left with uh, how do they continue to function inside this structure and what do the governing documents really say? And so those things have to be present. If they're not, that's a major red flag. Most, if not all, seasoned counsel or tax advisors would just say, "Don't invest until you see that." Now, I don't want to. I don't want to pick on on newbie uh, syndicators or operators because sometimes uh, things do move slower than if you're seasoned, and depending on the size of the acquisition or the asset that they're acquiring, it's okay to be a little bit slower. And to be able to say to an investor, hey, I don't have those yet done, 
but just expect if you're on the investor side to, to also be able to have the freedom to respond back, hey, just send the documents over once they are finished, I'll evaluate them quickly so I can get you a yes or a no. And don't, <laughs> so don't send your money. Don't send your money until you are confident that the structure that has been represented to you is actually in place and that you've actually read that governing document, because that's really what your rights, your responsibilities, as well as how you can hold the people that are taking your money responsible um, and accountable uh, to you during the life cycle of that investment. So those are some of the things that I see that make it baffles me and what why I think People should just be just be aware. And a lot of this stuff, you might say, man, that sounds like common sense. Yes, it does sound like common sense. So a lot of people, you don't have to always have a lawyer. You don't always have to have a CPA constantly vetting every aspect of this. You, you know, God gave you talent, intelligence, articulation. You have the ability to make some of these judgment calls. Just if it doesn't smell right, it doesn't, it doesn't feel right in your gut, then just pause. You don't have to say no, but you could certainly say no at any time, but just pause and ask questions. I think the biggest thing that I think I see from investors is this, a lack of confidence or a feeling that they will be embarrassed if they ask a question that they think is too dumb or not on point, or it isn't what they see on TV or hear on radio. And the reality is this is your investment. If you're a passive investor, take charge, feel confident. There is no dumb question. The only dumb question is the one that you don't ask. So feel, feel free to always ask a sponsor any question that you might have um, about the investment before you place the investment. I'm sure everybody listening has a pen and paper right now or some kind of note-taking device because you just gave so much gold there. And these are the questions that people don't know they don't know. And that's what's so important about having clarity on the legal component. And one thing that you mentioned that I do appreciate it is not that everybody's bad and evil and wrong and trying to steal your money. <laughs> I'm um, consulting on a development here where I moved to in Costa Rica. And because it's so early stage, some of the you know legal documentation isn't uh, you know fully completed. And we're working through right. with the first purchasers. But it's not that you know the developers out to get you. It's just like you said, some of the sponsorship teams in terms of the, the time of the deal structure, it may just be a bit of a slower process and that's okay. But allowing yourself, you know, the ability to not try and rush through things. And I think that that's in our instant gratification oh. world. There's that expectation. Well, I, I got to get going. I got to get into this deal. There's not going to be another deal. <laughs> it's all done for me if I don't wire that 50K. And what you really express for, pe express for people is saying it's okay to slow down, pause, get the right con consult on board, or also do it yourself if you feel like you can. And you know, going back to it being active versus passive, what would you say are the notable differences in in the legal process for passive versus active real estate deals and how do they impact investors differently? Yeah. So if you're an active real estate investor, you're, you're likely on the sponsor side, what we call the GP side. You might be controlling the deal, sourcing the deal, underwriting the deal, sourcing the debt, the equity side, asset managing it, 
uh, doing investor relations, putting everything together, and then really managing that throughout the life cycle of investment. When you're in the passive seat, and most of us, including myself, uh, are predominantly when we invest in the passive seat. There's way much. There's way more passive investors than there are active investors. And the reality is, you you really are passive. Meaning, understand that most passive investors are not going to have uh, massive voting rights. Um, uh, you you do want to know kind of what your obligations are. So we want to make sure that we review the governing documents. We want to make sure that typically that if there's going to be an, a, a capital call, meaning an event where the sponsor is going to be asking for additional equity over and above what you've already contributed into the deal, that that's voluntary, meaning that you're not going to be obligated to have to do that. Or if there is an obligation, you really understand what obligation there is and if there's a penalty associated with that. And a lot of those will depend on the asset class that you're investing in. So the energy sector, the equities market is much different than hard real, real assets, right? So you might see different clauses or different provisions or different obligations depending on the asset class that you invest in. So it's really, when I'm passive, I'm, I'm uh, reviewing the documents, I'm vetting the sponsors and the operators. I'm understanding what I'm buying and and I and what the risks are associated with that. I'm being organized because as a passive investor, even though you don't have a lot of obligations, ongoing obligations, the upfront kind of hustle and hurry, the rhythm and pa and pattern of the investment can sometimes feel hurried or rushed, but it's not. It's just it's different than what most passive investors are used to, right? So when you're a sponsor, you're like, I got to get the equity, which is the down payment to get the keys, the asset, so that you can get the loan typically and close the deal. Well, when you're a passive investor, time doesn't move like that. So so bridging that communication gap and, and, and being able to afford grace to the operator and the syndicator and understand that they're under a tremendous amount of pressure because it, it takes a lot of pressure to be able to organize deals like this, put them together, raise the capital. But if you're a passive investor, understand that there might be some hurry up uh, moments in time and there might be some, some things that you might consider to be private that you are going to have to provide to the sponsor and operator. For instance, if it's a deal that requires independent verification of your accredited investor status, you're going to have to be prepared to produce a letter of accreditation from your registered broker dealer or your lawyer or your CPA or provide uh, you know, financials and documents that otherwise would be considered private, right? And and polite conversation, you probably wouldn't pull out your your phone and plug into your app and show people what your brokerage statement is or what your net worth or your liquidity is. Uh, and so it's a different world when you're passively investing. Uh, so those are things that if I'm a passive investor, and then the last thing that I always remind myself as a passive investor is that um, uh, time kills deals. So there can be this kind of uh, paralysis by analysis or procrastination that really sets in 
So if you vetted a sponsor, you agree with the thesis that they put forward, it's a suitable investment for you, you're otherwise qualified to invest and you want to invest, then invest. Then make that decision as a passive investor and actually sign the documents and wire the money in there because you're never gonna you're never gonna win or become financially free or grow your portfolio or whatever objective you've set for yourself if you actually don't <laughs> don't get in the game. And in order to do so, you know, understand that the that the active the sponsors they can't wait all day for you. Yes, they can wait the proverbial day, but they can't wait for oodles of time, weeks on end, because their contract to perform, they're under a condensed time frame, and a lot of past investors don't understand that, that they actually have to often, unless they already own the asset and they're reverse syndicating their equity out of it, um, they really have to perform in that defined uh, space of time. And so you've got to be prepared to act quickly or just give them a no, uh, because that kind of paralysis by analysis is the worst thing if you're a passive investor. For you, emotionally, physically, spiritually, all of that's going to be a drain on you as a passive investor. So you really got to be prepared to act, be organized, vet the sponsor, read the documents, and then just act. That's amazing advice because I think what happens is that people aren't taking the initiative to pre-educate. So once they're interested in this world of alternative investing, that they're able to say, okay, let me vet the sponsors ahead of time. Let me maybe get a lawyer involved, get my CPA involved ahead of any kind of raise. And that's generally what I'm doing with my investors. Like, let's get you understanding this totality of what's going to happen. So when a deal does come online, like you said, you're respecting the actual brevity of what needs to occur for that deal to close. So really, really great advice of the things people need to look for. And looking ahead in 2024, Dugan, are there any legal changes or trends that passive investors should be aware of? I know there was some conversation about the SEC, uh, you know, changing the regulations around um, accredited status. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. So when we talk about the SEC, we talk about the governing body, our friends and colleagues who live in Washington, work in Washington, there's five commissioners. And depending on the political party that's in the White House at the time, they have the majority. So there's three commissioners that are in the ruling political party at the time. And there's two commissioners that are on the non-ruling uh, party at the time. And that flip-flops depending on who's in the White House. And so you have to understand um, from a from a, a, a kind of a governance or a jurisdictional perspective that the the tone and the temperature and the flavor of what you see from the commission can change depending on what happens in the political cycle. So we're in obviously this 2024 is the is an election year. So it's kind of like I don't envision any big sweeping changes to come out from the commission because it is a political year. Usually you'll see sweeping changes enacted in the first year of a new administration. So we've seen over the last few years, there's been a loosening of what we call the uh, the definition of what an accredited investor is. And then there's now with a, uh, uh, for the last couple of years, we've seen a tightening of what that looks like. And so there's been almost enforcement actions and more uh, corporate governance. So 
Um, it's anybody's guess. I would just say that the SEC moves at a glacial pace, right? So they don't move fast on on anything. And people, I think, forget that they really have three foundational principles. So the SEC has obviously what we all think about is the corporate governance, right? Thou shalt not and thou shalt, that type of thing. And they they govern uh, who is in and selling securities, meaning who is raising capital. But there's over 27,000 individuals, brokers, dealers, registered investment advisors, alternative trading systems, exchanges, individuals, private funds, all of that, that they have corporate governance over, right? And then there's and then there's the other thing of protecting investors. So they really want to make sure that unscrupulous operators, syndicators, people that are taking money from people um, in a fraudulent way, that they're stopped. And that's a great thing that they're that they're doing. But the third principle that I think a lot of people never even know about, they don't even ever talk about, is the SEC has a mandate. One of their foundational principles is to sponsor capital formation. What? That really means that they want you to do deals. They want you to invest. They just want you to do it responsibly because the lifeblood of the American economy is private equity. So if we if we understand that premise and we understand that private equity creates jobs and job growth is positive and job growth is apolitical, doesn't matter where you're at on the political spectrum. And it doesn't matter if you're in the ruling party or the non-ruling party. The reality is the Securities and Exchange Commission wants people to invest and they want reasonable deals to happen. They just want to be able to balance that natural tension between protecting investors and sponsoring capital formation and then obviously corporate governance all at the same time. So in this coming year, am I expecting the, to come full circle here on your question? Am I expecting to see a bunch of changes from the commission? I don't think so. Um, uh, I mean, uh, changes are always welcome. I know that there's a lot of uh, uh, commentary and, and what I would say noise in the blogosphere and the, in the space about the commission raising the, the definition of what an accredited investor is. I don't think that would be great. Because think about it, there are there have largely been large amounts of society, groups, individuals that have been largely disenfranchised um, for generations that haven't been able to invest, and that the this private investing, this alternative space, right, which far in, uh, outpaces, and you can objectively measure the S and P five hundred, the Russell two K index and the alternative investment space, not even close. Those that invest in the alternative space reasonably, not haphazardly, uh, have far outpaced the public markets. So I think it's better uh, with obviously good corporate governance and uh, bumpers for people to, to be able to participate. And if you limit the ability to be able to get in this space, and you and you just make it for the uber wealthy and the rich, right? Because uh, that's going to further hamper um, the ability for the the Main Street investor, not the Wall Street investor, not the richest of the rich, but really just Main Street investor to be able to invest into deals 
I think that's a good thing, not a bad thing. So I'm hopeful that the commission, um, which has historically wanted to make it so that more people could invest, just do so responsibly that they keep that tone uh, and nothing changes in connection with that aspect of it. That's excellent point. I mean, it is democratizing even more so. We're seeing more promotion of the alternative investing space. Access to information is tenfold and seems to only be going up. So this isn't going anywhere. And as you noted, it's probably going to go up at a much more rapid pace than other forms of investing because it becomes more trendy and people want those, you know, you know, I would say better returns, of course, is risk to everything and there's no promises, but there is that access to deal flow that wasn't previously available that is very attractive to somebody that's maybe been in a low performing stock for a number of years. And so Dugan, in some parting comments, you know, if somebody is ready to get in as a passive investor, they, they need some guidance and support, what would you recommend as the first steps for an individual? Just like what we talked about, like if if you feel confident that you understand how the deal is structured and you're able to uh, uh, decipher uh, the governing the governance documents, the private placement memorandum, the suitability questionnaires, the subscription agreement, kind of all those key ingredients that we expect to see in every offering, regardless of what the asset is that you're investing into, um, re- read it vet the sponsor, and then make a decision. But if you're somebody that that you feel like you need a little assistance, don't be shy about it. Contact, I mean, you can contact our office. We'd be happy to help you. Contact your attorney or your CPA and see if they would assist you. Most uh, that are familiar with the alternative investment space will uh, be willing to assist you and, and help you. And this isn't some sort of massive expense, but am I gonna spend personally, if I was a passive investor, am I gonna spend $500 or $1,000, depending on the size of the investment, um, to, to theoretically hedge against the loss of $50,000 or $100,000? Yes, I, I am, because it's prudent to do so. But if you feel confident, I think that the biggest thing is just act because we're living in the greatest transformation uh, for, of wealth, the, trans, the greatest transfer of wealth from one generation to the next generation is happening right now. It's, it's the largest transfer of wealth in human history is happening right now. So people might think, oh my gosh, well, the interest rates and all this volatility, it doesn't matter. There are investors, there are investor groups, there are what we call family offices, there are large funds that have been sitting on the sidelines for a long time, waiting to deploy their capital, and they love this market. They love the opportunities that come with the this type of market. So yes, there are always deals out there to be had. So if you think that you now have to to, to put your money in overnight treasuries or you have to invest in bonds or you need to keep it in low performing mutual funds or whatever, all those are fine. Those are fine and safe investments, but I think you're missing out. I really think you're missing out if you don't seriously consider the alternative space. And even if you uh, individually segregate off some part of your overall net worth or discretionary funding uh, to be able to invest in the space, I think you should do that. Um, I, I will tell you personally, 
I did that in the tax benefits that you can get, particularly from investing in things that are depreciable like real estate or even some oil and gas uh, investments are unlike anything that you can get in the public markets on the equity side. And so uh, if you're if you're a high income earner and um, and you want to be able to get some sort some form of tax benefits, this is not shady. This is not illegal. This is what the rich do. So if you want to know how the rich get richer and how they save their money and how they legally can help save on taxes, you need to be get informed and you need to get in the game. And so I would just say those are some of the things that I'm encouraging my clients uh, to do in 2024, not wait until 2025 or 2026. Uh, it's 2024. It's a it's a great time for them to be listening, reviewing, analyzing, and then acting. And that was the motivation. <laughs> Right there, because it's true. There's a lot of stuff coming out the pipeline. I think you shared it perfectly. These aren't Ponzi schemes, although you want to get a lawyer or if you have the ability yourself to review deals, there are so many opportunities and it's this access now that people can actually get into them with the right support and guidance. That is incredible to see. And I know I'm personally excited for the deals that I'm going to be LPing on this year and the deals that are coming across my plate that I'm going to be bringing investors into. So Dugan, thank you so much today. And where can people find you and do you work with people across the U.S.? Give me a little bit more info. Yeah, we do. Thankfully, we we the securities is a, a national standard, so we work with investors all across the United States to help uh, vet potential investments for them in this private offering space. Thankfully, my parents give me a very unique name, so there's not. I've never met another Dugan who's also a lawyer out there. So you can Google food my name, Dugan, D-U-G-A-N, on Google, and you can find me. Or you can send us, you can hit us up, send us an email at info at Kelly, my last name, K-E-L-L-E-Y, Clark, C-L-A-K-R-K-E.com. Hit us up. We'd be happy to help uh, talk to anybody and see if uh, we might be able to serve your legal needs. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of the Endless Wealth Podcast. If you loved what you heard here, please leave me a five-star review on Apple. It would mean the world to me to get this information out to more people like you.